Welcome to Past Perfect by CEU Medieval Radio. You're listening to an episode from our archives. For more recent episodes, head to podcast.ceu.edu. And if you want to keep up with the latest news about us, follow us on Facebook at CEU Medieval Radio, or visit our website at medievalradio.org. Thanks. This is Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there. You're listening to Past Perfect. I'm Christopher Milke, and this is CEU Medieval Radio Show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Joining us today is Katalin Senda. Dr. Senda is an associate professor in the Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest. Thank you very much for joining us today. Good evening. Thank you for the invitation. I know of you primarily as an urban historian, and you've done a lot of work on um, towns in Hungary. I've even gotten to take your class on uh, urban history. So um, starting with very basics, uh, what was the urban situation like in Hungary in the Middle Ages? The urban situation in Hungary changed very much over time. So that's uh, what is my primary fascination with urban history, that there is a long line of continuity Several settlements uh, started to exist a thousand years ago and have just grown and grown and are still here with us, like, say, Estergom or Fehérvár or most of the bishop seats. And there are others which came into being later and had a more spectacular development, like the two parts of Buda and Pest, which later became Budapest. And these changes over time uh, interest me very much in urban history. Okay, so you focus on the Middle Ages, but these cities have histories that go back thousands of years. Um, uh, so one of the things that I have to ask when dealing with cities that have such a long time period is um, for the cities in Hungary that were at one time Roman settlements, um, places like Gyura, Obuda, is there any sort of continuity um, between the Roman settlement and between the Middle Ages to speak of? That's also a very interesting question, and it has uh, really kept uh, generations of scholars occupied to look about continuity. And one important finding is that there are different sorts of continuity. It's not just a yes or no question, but it's a question of degrees of continuity, gradation. And in the sense, as there was continuity in Rome or in Florence or in greater cities in Italy or even in Cologne, we cannot speak about so strong continuity between not only uh, sides but also population. Surely there are hardly any places, maybe some, but hey, that's a, a question which can be discussed, that there was a continuous inhabitation of the sites. Otherwise, uh, it's more the sites and some of the ruins, some of the buildings, but there was no uh, population which stayed on and carried on the tradition. One way of looking at this is to look at names. And if there is a continuity in the names, then that had to be handed over by uh, generations of settlers, inhabitants of the place. Otherwise, the memory of the name could have faded. But even the names could be handed over by people who just arrived, knew and heard the name, and then traded it on. So that's also a question. Let me uh, think of some examples. 
For instance, in case of Obuda, which you have mentioned, then Akvinkum is far away from right. the later Hungarian name. There was no trace of any kind of continuity in that, although some of the buildings, for instance, the aqueduct has uh, remained and is still visible by the motorway if mm -hmm. you travel from the center of Buddha northwards. And also it was mentioned in some medieval perambulation records as a point of reference for the boundaries. Some structures existed, but the name didn't. So population must have changed significantly over time. Another interesting example, which you also mentioned, is Dürr. Dürr was in Roman times called Arabona. Mm -hmm. So again, the two names, the Hungarian name and the Roman name, are quite different. But if you think of the German name of the place, which is called Rab, then already some kind of similarity appears. And if you think of the river, which uh, flows into the Danube at Dürr, then even the Hungarian name Rába carries the same root, at least, if not exactly the same form. Generally speaking, I think river names carry a stronger degree of continuity than settlement names. So geographers and linguists have debated about it, but that's a, a case not only with the Rába, but for instance, the Danube, Duna, Dunai, Dunav, mm -hmm. different forms of the name. So also in case of Dürr, probably the river name became continuous or stayed in the memory of the population, and then the settlement was renamed in a way in German after the river. And the Hungarian name was completely different. That reflects the administrative reorganization of the country after the Hungarian conquest. Along the lines of this question of rivers, since a lot of medieval settlements appear on water of some kind, is that the same case for medieval Hungary? Do most of the towns that develop appear along the major river routes uh, in the kingdom? Yes, indeed, rivers as major routes of communication were always extremely important. If we think of, say, the first bishoprics, according to tradition, King St. Stephen, the first king of Hungary, founded two archbishoprics and eight further bishoprics, so ten altogether, and four out of these ten was along the Danube. So there was Dürr as a bishop seat, there was Esterkom, there was Vác, which is debated. Some scholars say that it was founded later by one of Stephen's successors, but in any case, that's also by the Danube, and Kalocsa, the seat of the second archbishopric, also by the Danube. So this line was very important. The other major river of Hungary, if you're familiar with the geography of the country, the Tisza was less important in that respect, probably because the course of the river was not so straight. Mm -hmm. There were very broad inundation areas or side arms of the river which made it difficult to cross, and therefore the only major settlement by the Tisza is Seged, which has been there from the 12th, 13th century onwards, if not before. Just a, a sort of um, very general question. Were the towns and cities in medieval Hungary, um, what were they like, uh, roughly speaking, population-wise? Are these very big settlements, or are, uh, are these smaller settlements, in your opinion? The number of population is a difficult and tricky thing to determine. We don't have population censuses before the 18th century, okay. Not no baptismal records before the late 16th century. So what we have is uh, rather population estimates on the basis of tax records, which again only appear from the 14th century onwards. So before that, it's very much like guesswork. I see. I can rather speak in terms of comparisons than absolute figures. 
So compared to major cities in Western Europe, Hungarian towns were relatively small. Mm -hmm. To quote some estimates, because probably that can still give closer um, image to, to the listeners, the biggest uh, settlement conglomeration, I say it so because it was really several settlements beside each other, Budapest, Obuda, and even some of the neighboring small villages, all together with the most optimistic estimate added up to something between ten and 15,000 inhabitants. Really? In the 15th, 16th centuries? In the, the late 15th, early 16th century. I see. Uh-huh. Earlier, it must have been significantly smaller, and there is a big rivalry for the title of the second biggest uh, town in medieval Hungary. Some people say that it was uh, modern Bratislava, Presburg, Pozsony, could have had uh, five, 6,000 inhabitants. Others say that only 4,000. In case of Kosice, medieval Kosha, it could have been roughly the same figure, four, 5,000. Others say very proudly that Brasho in Transylvania, Brasov now in Romania, had six, seven, maybe 8,000. But all these figures are very, very far behind, for right. instance, the 100,000 inhabitants of Paris or even the 40,000 of Cologne or the 20-something thousand of Vienna. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, And these are still the major focal points of the urban network of Hungary. If we think about smaller settlements, like Chopra had three, 4,000 inhabitants, Pech as a bishopric in the southern part, roughly the same, then we are already very far down the scale on European comparison. And um, if we think of market towns, so small local centers, they could be, say, under 2,000 for sure, but rather on the range of 1,000 inhabitants. We cannot be very proud of the numbers. <laughs> we can be proud of the existence of cities at all, but not the huge populations they attracted. In terms of being proud of things, I had the pleasure of reading one of your articles on the way that the towns looked uh, in terms of their relationship to trade. And um, you mentioned the example of Kozice, for instance, which it's currently in eastern Slovakia now, but um, in the Middle Ages, it was a very key stopping point um, um, between Buda and Krakow in terms of the trade. Uh, your article um, states how the, the development of the town plan um, for Kozice reflects that trade aspect. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about that sort of aspect in relation to how the towns looked? Yes, thank you. Indeed, topography tells very much about the story. And in the example which you quote, Košice or Kasha, there the main trade route went straight across the city or town, depending on what terminology <laughs> we use. So the main street of the town was the main trade route between, indeed, Buda and Krakow. And the other roads run kind of parallel. The whole perimeter of the town was a kind of oval-shaped uh, ground plan. And the other streets lengthwise uh, ran parallel to the main street, and there were some small streets cutting across or connecting these streets. Mm -hmm. So indeed, it was a huge marketplace in a way in the middle of the town, which is otherwise a ground plan rather characteristic of villages. So I won't say that uh, there is only a, a quantitative difference. There was also a qualitative difference between villages and busy trading centers like Kosha, but the ground plan indeed reflects this kind of connecting function. 
and by and large it's you know true like not just for the trade route with Krakow but it seems to be the case for other important trade routes that the important cities uh, developed a similar sort of plan where the biggest roads you know to Vienna to I guess um, the Adriatic also seem to reflect that as well. Yes, yes, the trade routes formed the backbones of the street system, the main axis of topography, at least in most cases. There are some exceptions. You were asking earlier about Roman continuity, and I can refer to the town of Chopron. It's a pity that uh, no images can be shown in this program, but if uh, you can imagine a late Roman fortified settlement with a kind of oval-shaped wall system, that remained the core of Chopron also in the Middle Ages. So that's a place where ruin continuity was a very important defining feature of later topography. And in that case, the main trade route had to go around. The Mm -hmm. walls were so thick, so high, so strong, that no trade route could go across. It was different in Roman times because then the Amber route, which connected northern Italy to the Baltic, ran straight across the town. Then part of it got fortified in the late Roman period, And these fortifications were reinforced in the Arpadian period, but the roads didn't cut through this fortification any longer, but the road went around this kind of oval-shaped fortified center. So, in a way, avoided the medieval central part of the town, but that, again, if I can jump a little bit to modern times, started to cause problems when modern communication systems developed, modern routes also avoided the center, which somehow, still until today, if I go there, I feel a bit sad. It doesn't have a real function. It lost its uh, centrality exactly because the main roads go around it and don't go across. Why were the walls so high and vast and extensive in Chopron? Is it because it's uh, on the Austrian border? Yes, indeed, that was the main reason. First of all, they had the the Roman walls still standing up to the height of six to eight meters, so it would have been a a waste to demolish them and extend the inhabited area by demolishing the walls. Rather, they had extensive suburbs as well. But this proximity to the border being a kind of real fortification, a very strong defensive point for the kingdom, that uh, resulted in not only keeping the walls, but extending. So Chopron, if I may use the comparison, it's not my idea, but other scholars have done it before, and I was a bit amused by the comparison, had a, a threefold wall system like Byzantium had. I see. So there was one round inside the Roman walls and another round outside the Roman walls. So it was probably one of the best protected centers of medieval Hungary. Very interesting. I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, urban institutions. In particular, um, you've done a lot of work on hospitals in medieval Hungary. So uh, would you mind telling the listeners uh, back home a little bit about medieval hospitals then? Sure. That's really a very peculiar institution to medieval towns. And this is a topic which uh, my parents also very much approved me of dealing with because they are medical doctors. But this was not the reason why I got interested in this topic but rather because the definition of urbanity is very often connected in historiography with the presence of hospitals. In many towns of Western Europe, following the idea of Jacques Le Goff, the presence of mendicant friaries was considered to be one of the definitive criteria 
urban historians always struggle with definitions. And mendicant friaries was an idea which connected the presence of a large number of population and a new way of spirituality. Now, Legov's ideas were tested on the Hungarian material very quickly after the original article appeared in the journal Annal. And Eric Fügedi was the scholar who applied this theory and found out that it doesn't completely fit the towns of medieval Hungary. We spoke a little bit earlier about towns in medieval Hungary being relatively small, also appearing somewhat later than in most other parts of Europe. And connected to this, Fügedi observed that mendicant friaries don't only appear in towns, but many of the bigger villages or market towns also have them. So it doesn't really act as a separative feature between towns and villages. But he came up with the idea that rather hospitals are connected with urbanity. And this was the line which I tried to pick up and follow up also together with my former student and now my colleague Judith Mayoroshi. We worked very much on defining the network of hospitals. Andras Kubiny is another scholar who worked extensively on the topic before us, and also their connection to urban topography, which we spoke about a little bit, and I will try to say a few more words about it, and urban topography and urban society, and to define what were those criteria why urban society needed hospitals more than other segments of society needed, rural society, or the nobility. And what we could find out uh, from the close reading of the records was that in towns there was a greater amount of population which could not rely on care by their families or rely on care of a closer community of personal acquaintances. So there was a number of people who had to rely on institutional care provided by the community on a basis of common finances. And this is where hospitals came into the picture. These institutions were founded not primarily as medical institutions. This is where my parents could be perhaps a little bit disappointed, but as caring for the old, the aged, the infirm, or even for the pilgrims. If we look at the topographical aspect, hospitals are very often situated on approach roads to towns not only and not primarily because local society wanted to segregate ill people, apart from lepers, that's a different question, but the normal inmates of the hospitals were members of society which did not need to be isolated from the rest in any ways. But having the hospitals placed along the approach roads, the pilgrims could approach them even without crossing the town gates in case they were closed for the night and also collecting alms, collecting donations, needed a kind of visibility for the hospital. And having been situated along the approach roads, this visibility was much stronger than if it had been tucked away in a, a side street or somewhere in the outskirts of the settlement. And oh, no, I think it's very important, you know, and it's, and it's one of those things that when I've taught before, some of my students had a hard time wrapping their heads around that a hospital in the Middle Ages wasn't always necessarily an infirmary. To give an example uh, I'm a bit more familiar with, in uh, London, um, on what used to be the sort of um, fringes of medieval London, there was the uh, cemetery of St. Mary's Spittle that was uh, mm -hmm. excavated, and overwhelmingly the skeletons um, that they found there were 
Usually, they appear to be young men in their 20s in various stages of health, but mostly otherwise healthy. That's healthy, interesting to hear. At least for the young men. I can't speak about the other ones, but the point is that the idea of, from what I can remember of my readings, is that at, at St. Mary's Spittal, they surmise that the majority of the people who ended up being buried at the cemetery would have been journeymen or sort of young men trying to enter um, trade of some kind, or possibly pilgrims passing through as well. So people who didn't have any family background in the place, who didn't have others to care for them, and they had to take up lodging in, yes. in such an institution, that perfectly makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you mentioning the journeyman, that's quite interesting, because there is an interesting paragraph in the statutes of the journeyman, I think the shoemaker, journeyman from Presburg, Bratislava, Pozhony. I always have to mention all the names to all make three. people familiar with uh, where the place is situated. But in any case, uh, the statute says that if a journeyman falls ill, then the guild has to provide a certain sum for them to pay for medical care so that they don't have to sell their tools to the Jews to get money for the treatment, or they don't have to go to the hospital. So it shows that going to the hospital was one of the two worst options, I which see. journeymen had to or tried to avoid by being taken care by the guild instead of in the hospital. How interesting. So they didn't always, these institutions didn't always have the best reputation. I see. <laughs> I have to ask concerning your research on the hospitals in medieval Hungary, do we know anything about the buildings of what these places looked like? Well, very few buildings actually remain to our own times, mm -hmm. partly because they were relatively small. When we hear about the number of inmates, then it's usually around 20 or even less. Foundation documents, again, if they survive, often mention the number 12 for the 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. There was also a kind of uh, religious significance in founding hospitals. And it served, in my view or in my experience with the sources, more the salvation of the founders' souls than the salvation of the inmates' bodies. Right. So these numbers indicate that these buildings were relatively small and not very strongly built. I can only quote one or two examples when the building has survived in some kind of rebuilt form. For instance, in Sharushpatak, architectural investigation of a building standing not too far from the parish church revealed that this was indeed the old hospital building. And it was very interestingly transformed, earlier being a big hall that can be seen often in panel paintings, not of Sharushpatak, but generally when panel paintings show hospitals, that in the Middle Ages, all the inmates were housed in one big hall. There were beds, uh, sometimes separated by curtains or paravans, but uh, otherwise in one common space. And when this particular example, Sharushpatak, was transformed in the Renaissance period and the Reformation, which is more important for that, then small individual rooms were created instead of the one big joint common room for the inmates. So the private spirit became more important for running the hospitals, for housing people, than having a big board for everybody together. Mm -hmm. So Sharospatak is one example, Gyöngyös, also in northeastern Hungary, is another example. Ilona Walter, an archaeologist, was very active in identifying these buildings. And otherwise, in many places, these were pulled down mm -hmm. in later periods, either just turned into civic buildings or 
bigger hospitals, rather medical institutions took over their places. Sometimes place names, street names preserve the memory of these buildings, but otherwise one has to work backwards on old maps and look at the locations of these places from that source. When you were talking about the space setup of the hospitals, it did make me think of one very interesting uh, medieval hospital in Constantinople. There is a connection. First, I'll talk about the setup of it because it was founded in the 12th century and it was a very revolutionary in a lot of ways. For instance, there was a portion of the hospital devoted to medical care and divided into five wards. I think it was two for internal medicine, um, one for a sort of geriatric ward and another for women. And I can't remember the fifth one, but um, the physicians had to wash their hands. Each patient had a bed to um, him or herself. And and there's been some discussion over how effective this was as a medical establishment. But I mention it because there are two founders of it. And one of them was the Byzantine emperor, John II. And the other was his wife, a Hungarian princess named Piroshka originally, and who later took the name Irene. So one of the most advanced um, medical establishments of the day in Constantinople appears to have been founded in part by a Hungarian princess who her husband had to complete the job. So we have his words on the foundation, not hers, sadly. Yeah, this example also shows the huge difference between the magnitude of cities and urban institutions in Hungary and in other parts of Europe. And I think in the Eastern Roman Empire and then its heir, the Byzantine Empire, traditions of care for the sick, care for the poor, and having institutions in the cities on public finances carried on much better the Roman traditions than any such institution would have done in the western part of the continent. What I've heard about the Turkish baths, for instance, is that in a lot of ways, the system of the Turkish baths and going from the different types of pools is something that there's a trace of Byzantine and Roman influence in that as well. I'm not sure how that is, but uh, having been to a few Turkish baths in Budapest, it's very nice. <laughs> yes, the public use of water underwent also different changes. Indeed, there is a kind of misconception about the Middle Ages that people were generally dirty. Now, that's not completely true because in many medieval towns one can see a set of baths mainly based on streams or brooks which ran through, so they were not usually hot water baths. But still, for instance, in Chopron, which we were talking about earlier, there were three bath houses closely to each other by the brook Ikva. Mm -hmm. So that was really a very small brook with a small amount of water. But Still, three such establishments could survive beside each other. And, and if I can quote an interesting case from one of the sources connected to one of these baths, there were, of course, female servants working in the bath. And in one of them, this female servant was accused of having stolen the purse of one of the guests of the bath. It couldn't be proven, and there was a a court case in front of the town court where the guest complained. And finally, even if it couldn't be proven, the maid was convicted to restore the stolen money. And she had to have a purse in her neck and put one third of her income, it says one dinar after every three dinars she gained, into this purse and have it as a kind of saving box 
as long as she could collect the sum and restore it to this guest who complained about his valuables being stolen in the bath. So baths were also a kind of social meeting point, traditionally also connected with more liberal conduct than in the rest of the society or in a dress state of people. They're also connected to hospitals because, again, to quote an example from Chopron, the hospital there was situated along the very same brook as the three baths. I see. In a way, the baths were upstream, so whatever came down in the water from the bath reached the hospital and oh, I see. <laughs> flew out of the town. But And from our previous conversation, for the example of Chopron, it also seems that the brothel was also very close to the three baths. And... Yeah, indeed, that was just a bit further upstream. So <laughs> oh, the, water the water first reached the brothel, then the three baths, and then, and the, then hospital. the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the sequence, indeed. Oh, how funny. We've been talking a bit about topography and layouts, and I wanted to spend this particular section um, talking about people. Just starting off with a very uh, generalized question, uh, um, could you tell me a little bit about some of the social history that you've uh, done um, in studying these towns? Yes, of course, uh, studying towns is not complete without studying people. Just to look at street patterns, town plans, or buildings in an empty state would make no sense. So, in fact, I started out by looking at people even before I started to look at other aspects of it through their last wills, which may sound a little bit particular or peculiar aspect to look at people from their last wills. But in fact, these are wonderful sources, partly because so many of them have survived, at least from a few towns in medieval Hungary, like Bratislava, Pozsony, Presburg, Chopron, but also some of the northeastern towns, Bartva, Bardejov, Eperjes, Breshov, and well, there are some others uh, scattered from Transylvania as well, but I haven't worked so much with those. And uh, last wills tell a kind of retrospective story of people. They give a snapshot of their families as they were at the time of the testator's death because they felt obliged to mention most of the important persons in the family. Fortunately, the urban inheritance laws stipulated that there is not just one main heir, and I say that I leave everything which I used to own to my wife and full stop. That wouldn't make a very interesting source or wouldn't let us know very much about urban society. But fortunately, many of the last wills give a detailed list of connections, networks, persons, partly the families, partly business contacts, partly guild members or partners in handicrafts. Others list ecclesiastical institutions, persons. Hospitals also come up in this context as well, which we had been talking about, because inmates of the hospitals could be one of the beneficiaries of charitable donations in last wills. So all these connections come out and one can map out urban society through last wills very well. It's kind of like looking at their Facebook page almost. Yes, indeed. You can draw a comparison to that, only that with the will, there was also a very strong connection to the supernatural or to the afterlife mm -hmm. of people. All the donations uh, were connected, partly, of course, with family matters and family members, but also with respect to how to promote the testator's memory and the testator's salvation. Many of the donations went, for instance, to enhance uh, the burial services 
And that also gives a cross-section of society. Very often our sources are biased and lonely, the richest or the most powerful members of society are represented in the text. But in the last wills, for instance, there are sections telling about who should attend someone's funeral. And that mentions, uh, maybe unexpected, school children in the first place, and guild members, and also poor people. Because all these people were given very small sums of donations, a penny or so in, uh, say, modern terms, in order to enhance the crowd. The more people attend the, the funeral, the best the memory of the person being buried is preserved, and also the more prayers he receives. Much of these donations also went to shorten one's time in purgatory. And how could this time be shortened? Also by getting more prayers from people. And in this respect, the prayers of the poor seem to have been also very valuable. School children were supposed to sing at the funerals. So that's how we learn about contemporary practices. This also tells us that uh, an increasing section of society received some kind of formal education towards the late Middle Ages. I'm speaking about the late 15th, early 16th century. There were schools set up for ordinary citizens' children. And the priest was also, of course, the singing teacher, and he was familiar with liturgical service. Even if these schools were run by the urban community and not necessarily by the parish, still these services at the funerals or also at other urban feasts were very much connected with the participation of school children as well. So you get really a nice cross-section of society, not only through the testators, who were, of course, people of some kind of means, but also those who are mentioned in their wills through their charitable actions. I see. Along the lines of the people drawing up these documents, making these last wills, I have to ask, um, are these people making these documents on their own, or is there a scribe writing it down for them? Usually it's very rare that uh, anyone makes a last will with his own hand, not only because of the usually fragile condition of the person at the deathbed or in uh, some kind of illness, but also because uh, it didn't only need the knowledge of writing, which became more and more widespread through education, but also the knowledge of the relevant formulas. Last wills were legal texts, mm -hmm. and they had to have validity, which could not be attacked by a distant family member suddenly showing up and saying that, oh, this was not written in the required manner, and in fact, I am the main heir of everything. So one wanted to avoid this I kind see. of situation. So a person who also knew the necessary legal formulas was invited, and that was usually the town scribe or the town notary. So again, in the late Middle Ages, starting from the 14th century, town chanceries were set up very much on the pattern of uh, partly the royal chanceries and also ecclesiastic chanceries. There were church bodies responsible for writing in earlier periods. In the first period of urban literacy, there was often a kind of interplay or cooperation between the local monastery and the first town scribes, and the first uh, town charters were very often produced together by a cleric, an ecclesiastical person, and the main magistrates of the town. They were issued 
together and later on the town took over completely these tasks. Also for last wills, but for any other purpose, there was a, a main notary, which was well-qualified intellectual, very often with some university education or at least some experience at universities, even if not with a degree. And also there were people helping a kind of vice, scribe vice notaries. And by the early 16th century, there was quite a differentiated personnel at uh, the town chanceries. And that resulted in the amount of written material multiplying in the biggest centers, which is again a great gain for us, the late researchers of these topics. Okay, so along the lines of education, I have to ask, um, what was the literacy situation like for most townspeople uh, in medieval Hungarian towns? Again, it's impossible to give a percentage. Well, that right, of course. 25% of uh, the population of Buddha was able to read and write. This is something which no one can assess right, from any kind of source. But the need for writing, the need for arranging businesses in writing and having someone to prepare a document, to draw up a contract, to make business accounts, to write a, a private letter even, this visibly increased... Uh, throughout the, the Middle Ages, and one can often find even very small personal notes in these centuries written by burghers just to note some very ephemeral small transaction. And if it got recorded in a town book, which was also an innovation in this period, then even if it was originally in a, a small slip of paper, if it was copied into a town book, then it has also been preserved for our times. For the wills and testaments, are most of these in Latin? Are they in Hungarian? What sort of languages um, are these written in? Hungarian is very rare, but other vernaculars do appear, notably German. Mm, okay. That hangs together also with the fact that a great proportion of uh, urban population spoke German at least in those towns from where the majority of last wills has been preserved. Mm -hmm. I won't generalize it for the whole of Hungary. And for instance, for Buddha, there is an increasing amount of Hungarian population. But uh, Hungarian didn't become a literate language for a greater population until the middle of the 16th century. But uh, for instance, German was a very important written language. Of course, in the spoken practice, also Hungarian was in use. And even in protocols, it's uh, often prescribed that Hungarian has to be used. For instance, when there is an interesting source, also in German, the Law Code of Buddha. It's a kind of series of statutes, and it has patterns for oaths for different town magistrates, the mayor, the town notary, the council members, and so forth. And these formulas also say that they have to swear the oaths first in German and then in Hungarian. Also, German magistrates had to somehow publicly proclaim their affinity to the language of part of the urban population. So I find it really a kind of sensible compromise to show that they are aware that the population is not homogeneous, not only of one ethnic group. 
it's sort of interesting, you know, to think about a lot of different tensions breaking across ethnic boundaries that are happening all over the world. And if you look at a lot of medieval cities, it's a vast degree of people mingling together who admittedly didn't always get along, but in towns where you have um, Jews, Germans, Armenians, Italians, Greeks, all with their own different neighborhoods, all for the most part, managing on a day-to-day -day basis. It's really sort of interesting to think about the compromises that were worked out and um, the cooperations that happened across various cultural, linguistics, and even religious boundaries. Yeah, indeed, cities are fascinating for this uh, reason as well. So looking at the ways people found to get along with each other are very interesting to detect in the sources. Of course, uh, one has to look for small details, some small facts. There are no particular sources saying that this is the list how people need to get along with each other. <laughs> but, for instance, if one looks at topography again, to turn back to a topic which we have discussed before, then one can see that these people didn't really, at least as far as Hungarian towns are concerned, didn't segregate into clearly defined districts, but they lived side by side with each other. Very often a house which was owned first by Italian was sold to a German, later on bought by a Hungarian, so there were not clearly defined ethnic neighborhoods. Another example is the position of the Jews in towns. They did not segregate, they were Jew streets. For instance, in Sopron, it was Almost in the geographical middle of the center, it was called in the local German language Judengasse, and this street also contained houses owned by Jews side by side with Christians. The synagogue was also situated in this street, but it was not blocked, it was not closed off mm -hmm. in any physical way from the rest of the town. And of course, we can also see records where the population comes together not only by selling these properties, but also business transactions by sometimes uh, Christians and Jews appearing together in front of the court and settling mainly some kind of monetary business. But it was completely normal to live together, to trade together from other towns, unfortunately not from Hungarian examples, we know about Jewish wet nurses uh, taking care of babies of Christian families. So that implies really a very, very intimate connection to, yes. to have your child being fed by a person of a, a different religious group. Well, I think the fact that they're living side by side is very telling because in larger cities, I'm thinking again of Constantinople, there's the Genoese Quarter, for all sorts of different types of people passing through the city, they each sort of had their own district of source. So it's interesting to think that for smaller urban settlements, um, there seems to be more, I guess, of, of an integration than segregation. Indeed, they couldn't afford to stay apart from each other. <laughs> Fair enough, then. Before we end the show, I just wanted to ask you, um, are there any ongoing projects that you're working on that you'd like to tell the listeners about? Yes, indeed, there are 
Of course, many ongoing projects and this wide range of sources which you have been talking about uh, always give us uh, new opportunities. And one good thing about urban archives are that they have not been exhausted. Some of the royal archives have been published back and forth and discussed, and not to speak about chronicles and such sources, but urban accounts, for instance, or even last wheels, which we have been talking about, have not been exhausted at all. So there are many, many possibilities. But what I would uh, really like to mention here is a big international project which uh, Hungary has became member about uh, 10 years ago, and this is the Historic Towns Atlases. And this connects us back again to the topographical discussion, because, of course, in order to have an idea about topography, we need to study town plans. And very often, since we don't have contemporary town plans, that's very, very rare that anything before the 16th century was put down in a graphic form about cities, only perhaps some allegorical representation of the heavenly Jerusalem, which are not exactly topographical. Right. But uh, otherwise, we have to work with later sources and somehow try to project back the evidence or try to see where there is continuity and where there are changes and how individual elements of the town's or the town plan can be followed back in time. And in order to do that on a large scale, there was an initiative already more than 40 years ago by an association called the International Commission for the History of Towns. The idea was not only to publish uh, town plans, but to try to publish them on the same scale in order to make them comparable. We were talking very much about scale and size and that comes out very nicely. If you can have the town plan of a, a place in one to 2,500 and A3 sheet, then it was a small place. Mm -hmm. If you need a double A0 sheet, then it was indeed a, a very large place. This project has been taken up by now in 18 countries in Europe, so it's really a comparative project on a large scale. And almost 500 atlases have been published. Oh in Hungary, two of the 500, <laughs> but there are eight more in the making. Okay, and we have teamed up with uh, scholars from different towns to do it. Of course, the first one was Chopron, <laughs> but the second one is a place which is not so easy to remember, Sátoraja Újhely. It's, uh, in fact, a, a small town in northeastern Hungary of 13th century origin, so it has good medieval roots and medieval sources. And further ones include Kecskemét, Buda, Szeged, Debrecen, Pécs, Vác, Kőszeg, and so forth. So these atlases will also be produced according to these international standards. And it's really exciting to look at sources also from later periods and try to follow this sequence back and see whether, say, a cultic center has always been one place of a church, uh, was always that, or for instance, in case of monasteries, very often it could be transformed through the secularization into a, a town hall or even into a hospital or how different functions of public buildings changed over time. Mm -hmm. So it's really fascinating to go into this and also to put maps side by side and compare the structures, the patterns of different settlements. That sounds very exciting, and we look forward to seeing what ends up coming out. Um, Dr. Sunda, thank you very much for being a guest today. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure having you.
And for the listeners back home, it's always a pleasure having you tune in to us. So be sure to continue to visit us on the web at www.medievalradio.org. Send us an email to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. We thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.